Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I just had one of my headphones in, one of them out. One of my headphones in, one of them out. Excuse me. three on a monday where we're all recording from different locations one in newcastle one in florida one in manchester um one in london sorry to disappoint uh, it's good to have nico dave and chris on this podcast this weekend there was a lot of good football and we're about to get into it real quick uh, thank you very much for your feedback today on twitter it's been good uh, some of it's been bad no it's all been good and uh we're going to go through some of it on today's show your questions your mentions um, and indeed, some are just the normal stuff that people are posting online. There's a lot of big football stuff going on right now as football manager comes out and football managers might come out. But more on that later. Uh, let's cover the big games from the weekend with you, Dave. Let's start with Manchester United 1, Spurs 0. Uh, we watched the game live on the kickoff with Coral. And it was, you know what? I didn't think it was as bad as everyone's saying. Uh, everyone seems to say that Mourinho is killing football, but it felt like Tottenham were trying to revive it. No, I watched it back again. I, you know, on the first first sort of viewing of the the game, it, it wasn't a great game. But if you go back and you, you look for some certain tactical trends in the game, you see what Mourinho was doing. Mourinho won that game again, and he's not going to get credit for it because he he killed their opponent, and that unfortunately in this day and age isn't a you know isn't a positive thing in the game, and it never will be, I don't think. Uh, I mean, it might it might be positive at some point. I mean, um, do you do you think, though, Dave, that it, it it is about how he kills the opponent? I think it's interesting. I think he's nullifying their strengths. I think the big thing with Spurs without Harry Kane, you've you've only really got to deal with Deli Ali and Christian Eriksen in an attacking sense. So, you know, Deli Ali was pretty much nullified by Eric Bailly or uh, Ashley Young or whoever was picking up Deli Ali. They left it to the defence to deal with. You know, Tottenham going with a three-five-two. But the interesting inside was Christian Eriksen United went man-to-man in midfield and they almost went against the triangle of Tottenham that had one base and two ahead whereas Manchester United went with two bases and one ahead in terms of the formation and that completely killed their midfield Tottenham couldn't get going Christian Eriksen had a pretty bad game with the ball at his feet quite frankly I think he only created one big chance in the game that was the ball to Deli Alley over the top but quite frankly you look at the chances that were created in that second half you ignore expected goals for this game is a good example of why expected goals is a load of rubbish right now or it oh. could be a better model you look at the expected goals of this game for Manchester United versus Tottenham. In fact, Tottenham have a greater expected goals. That's because you're negating you know, some chances that United created that were last-ditch tackles for Tottenham where the shot was just blocked or so forth. You know, you think about the, um, you know, the Mkhitaryan shot that eventually popped out. Loris made a cracking save and Ben Davies slid in, you know, stopping Marcus Rashford simply putting the ball in the back of the net. Or you take the Marcus, uh, no, sorry, the Mkhitaryan cross a few moments later that went across that again Loris nicked it and it went out for a throw in those two moments that were massive, massive in terms of expected goals if, if the players had even like kicked the ball at all, uh, but they aren't counted in this model, which is one of the criticisms 
of this model is that things like that aren't taken into consideration. But you take that second half, those two big chances I talk about then. Lukaku also hit the post, obviously the Martial goal. And then you think Jess Lingard got clean through. You compare that to the chances that Spurs created, especially in that second half. You've only got the Ericsson to Ali as one. So quite frankly, yes, United did negate what Spurs were doing. Yes, they did kill the game. But but they had a clear game plan of dropping the ball behind the Spurs back three, running from outside to in from the strikers. And that's exactly what the goal, uh, how the goal came, was an outside to in run. Yeah, it was it was a great run. And uh, obviously what some people are calling route one, um, maybe irony is in the past, I think some fans have been quite critical of that. I think a lot of people are probably just criticising Mourinho because they enjoy goading Manchester United fans. Maybe Manchester United fans who spoke about playing the best football in the league in the past or... Uh, you know, sort of. I don't uh, think it's Gordon. I think the the problem is, is that uh, I think I think they were so desperate to give Mourinho a pass after Liverpool that this Spurs game is now too far the other way. So, like, <clears throat> I I agree with Dave's take that Mourinho nullified what Spurs tried to do. I also think Kane missing for Spurs is a greater impact and Pogba missing for United and and the problem with that game was watching it back is that right it's great to sit and, and nullify your opponent and, and do that kind of stuff and Mourinho even said after the Liverpool game the reason um, he made some of his substitutions he was waiting for Klopp to make some attacking substitutions and for the game to kind of open up a bit so that's the flaw in the Mourinho approach is that if you're constantly waiting for your opponent to do something so you can counter it or nullify it or, or do something to it it means you're never taking the game by the scruff of the neck it means you're always waiting on them to do something and I'm going to be really curious to see in these coming months up until Christmas which I think is, is one of the more important portions of the season how he handles those games where opponents will sit off where opponents aren't going to look to do anything to try and, and come out and attack Man United I think the game against Rafa Benitez that's coming up will be a great example of that because I know for a fact watching this Newcastle side fairly regularly Rafa's going to sit and he's going to be defensive and he's going to want to counter-attack and he's not going to want to give an inch up in the final third to Man United so I think for me that's that's where I'm looking at Mourinho now. Yeah, he did a good job in, in beating Spurs. The expected goals, it's it's identical um, looking at it here, 1.1 or 1.1. So it was clearly a close game and Man United edged it. But I think he's he's going to be... He's going to have to be very careful if he keeps riding that line because there's just as much chance that that ends 0-0 or 1-1 as it does 1-0. And I think that's where he has to be very careful moving forward if, if he's going to keep relying on his opponents to, to do something to open the game for him. Well, I guess that's the interesting side, isn't it? Is that actually, for Mourinho, he could have drawn that game um, and it, it probably still would have been a, a good result because I think United maybe haven't in the past relied on, or maybe Mourinho seems to haven't relied on um, always winning the big games. Uh, although he does have a very good success rate and obviously the, su the success is one of the end products I guess another one of the end products is going to be the satisfaction or the entertainment value or the sort of um, maybe some of the pride that the fans feel in the club and it, it, I'd imagine it does sort of mar it a little bit when you always have someone caveating what you've done with yes but um, as opposed to maybe you know losing a league but playing really nice football um, but I, I, again, that's sort of down to taste. It's not really. It's it, the weird thing is, that I guess uh, Twitter is a much more. It sounds quite objective, but actually, it's quite subjective. Nico, one thing I want to cover on Spurs, which is quite interesting, is um, obviously without Harry Kane, they didn't look quite like the same team. They did still create some chances, and you got to admit, Harry um, Harry Kane 
maybe would have done something more. I don't know. Um, but they it looked a bit different. They won't always come up against such a staunch defence, though. So I still think the Spurs will be OK. Yeah, I think the the point that you mentioned there about Harry Kane uh, specifically, you know, it, it probably would have been way different if Harry Kane was in the game because of how dynamic of a player he is, regardless of how good Manchester United are from a defensive perspective. The thing that I've heard many coaches admire about Harry Kane is not just his finishing ability and his, you know, all around attributes that seem to fit the the striking role, the modern striking role in such a such a fantastic way, but the way that he comes deep, the way that he can involve himself in the play in different areas of the pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he's an incredibly important player for Spurs. But just to to talk a little bit about the game, I think, you know, Manchester United did very well to match Tottenham's game plan in the sense that obviously without Harry Kane or even with him, they still use sort of that back five-ish, back four-ish, uh, the passing ability of those players to come on to the opposition, the delivery of someone like Ben Davies uh, and 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 Toby Alderweireld and the passing ability that they possess is something that Tottenham have used this season to to really destroy teams from far away and, and sort of compacting the formation. The, the significant thing about that is the way that Manchester United press as a team. Not too many pressing metrics can accurately tell us how good Manchester United are at that because they are a sort of a medium to a low block sort of pressing system that did really well to disrupt the most effective players on the ball uh, for Tottenham and specifically targeting like Deli Alley. He didn't get too much service at all. There was that one really big chance that did, you know, he, he might have scored in a different situation, but it's a really difficult chance to put away. So I think it was a good tactical plan from Mourinho. Still a very even game. Um, but, you know, it, like you said, it's difficult sometimes to, to do something correctly as Mourinho has done and then have it caveated by somebody saying oh well they should be doing this or they should be doing that it was a good win for Manchester United and although it wasn't like a blow away or anything it's still a win that you know is good for their team and, and ultimately good for for their standing in the league does raise a big thing with that just just one final thing on that you know the reason why Mourinho targeted the centre-backs especially the outside centre-backs is because they're not natural centre-halves in a way they're these modern day centre-backs that are very very good on the ball but lack the physical ability lack the ability in the air and those two constraints of having ball-playing centre-backs is what Mourinho counter-attacked. You know, you look at Lukaku, not only did he absolutely bully out of Vireld in when he hit the post with the ball, you see him absolutely shove him out of the way, completely, in terms of physical sense, puts him, you know, puts the, the arm in, strong arms in, and gets the header away. You take the goal as well, go back and you watch Lukaku, they're together out of Vireld and Lukaku, and Lukaku just pushes off him and goes off him, completely outstrengths him and flicks it on. And then you go on to the other side with the, the Vertonghen pace because he's got these other traits and skills. And, and I think it's one of these things where that everyone's saying that's a simple goal. You know, it's a dead basic goal. De Gea's gone long, it's a flick on, it's a goal. It is simple, but it's what United were doing to unlock this, this Spurs back three that arguably have been brilliant. The thing that I question is why Davinson and Sanchez did not play ahead of Eric Dyer. Because Davinson and Sanchez is physical, is good in an aerial duel, is very, think- very quick. And that was... Th- for me, that was a bit stupid by Pochettino, who hasn't won. He's won one game in the last 16 against the, the top six sides. And again, that was a mistake, I thought. Well, I think take to answer your, where we're going, yeah, that is part of the problem. I, I think to answer your question about the Eric Dyer question, I think it's a legitimate one because Davinson Sanchez has been a really imposing uh, center back and has settled into that complex uh, Spurs defensive system like he's always been there. But I think the idea behind that uh, was to, to, to sort of deploy him as sort of a modern libero, if we want to use that term, a player that can go from a you know defensive formation being part of the back five or part of the back four, or in this case, I guess the back five, and transition into a midfielder sort of at will and give you 
numbers in different situations. I don't necessarily think it was the correct game plan is sort of what you're talking about, but the idea was there. And I think using uh, Eric Dyer in, in such a flexible position in these sort of ways is, is a positive thing for his development and other, you know, English players in, in this modern Premier League. It's definitely positive, but I mean, Sanchez, at the same time, lost. Sanchez could have done that, right? Not, not as a midfielder. Er, the thing, the thing about Eric Dyer is he's so versatile because he is a competent center back and he is a competent central midfielder. So if you can use him in that dynamic way, and you you have the advantage of having a back five, a secure back five, and the advantages that playing a system like that brings, and also having an extra man in midfield when you want to go forward, that's such an advantage in the, in the modern game because of the all of the the, the the different things it can bring to your side. I love to hear two men have drunk the Kool Aid like, of either of their managers. <laughs> Uh, this is this is great chat, uh, and Dave, I'll give you a final chance to reply. <laughs> Davidson Sanchez could 100% do that role. He's one of the te- most technical gifted centre-backs I've seen in a long time, but he has that other ability to transition quicker. I understand that Eric Dyer has played in midfield for Pochettino. Pochettino hasn't played Sanchez in that position. Maybe that's the only thing, and maybe what Pochettino needs to do next week is play Sanchez in midfield and give him a run in that role. I don't understand why they couldn't have played both. Uh, I mean, if you're going to play defensive and counter anyway, <laughs> why, not play, why not play Sanchez and Dyer? Then that will really piss Jose off uh, because you've out Jose, Jose in a way. Um, which, to be fair, a lot of managers have actually identified, and maybe that's something that uh, some, maybe even managers like Rafa Benitez back in the day did try to do, um, and actually did lead to a fair bit of success for uh, his Liverpool team against Chelsea. So let's see. I'll be interested to see if uh, Rafa tries to out Jose, Jose in the coming weeks. He didn't quite have the same squad that he did a few years ago. And that's a fact. Uh, anyway, uh, let's talk yeah, to you. Yeah, this Newcastle one is better than the Liverpool one, right? Yeah, that's. I mean, they don't have Igor Biscan, but still. <laughs> um, West Brom versus uh, Man City. I thought of the bigger team first there, Nico. It finished 3-2 to Man City. Doesn't really tell the story of the game, does it? No, it's a little flattering to us from uh, Nicholas Anamendi at fault for conceding a stupid goal towards the end of the game, but it was still a, another domineering performance from Manchester City and maybe continuing along this idea of talking about players and how they, you know, how they're developing English players specifically and how they're developing in the modern Premier League. I think this is another game that really hits the nail on the head with the idea that I've been speaking about in terms of, you know, the usage of certain English players in their current club teams. We look at Eric Dyer with Tottenham and the Manchester City players and John Stones and Raheem Sterling specifically um, finishing off a, a maybe a classic Pep Guardiola goal. You know, it, it's so difficult to see that these players are performing so well in, in their club sides and they probably won't be used to the same uh, to the same level of effectiveness with their national team. But another great performance from Manchester City, I think the, the highlight was sort of that goal that Raheem Sterling finished off. I think it was one of his first touches um, after coming on as a substitute. But, you know, another great performance from Manchester City where they were able to use their positioning to sort of uh, disassemble the opposition. Yeah, it, it looks like a fairly open and shut case. Um, I do have one concern with City. Finally. Their ability to close out a game in so much as they are such a good team at attacking, at doing all these things. And I thought the the Sterling goal in particular was fantastic. There was a, a great stat floating around today that Sterling and Sane, I believe, have matched their goal tally from last season yeah. already. Yeah. Now that, that shows you they're great in the final third. The one thing I've got is watching that game back, 
just that last sort of I mean the goals that West Brom scored there weren't great goals in the case of the second one it's a mistake by Otamendi trying to be too clever I just worry if there's going to be a week or two or a few where essentially a, b- a bit like a boxer if you will Man City's defence not as a, a unit but their inability to just shut a game out and really take the air out of a game like if we can draw a comparison to Mourinho he can do might just come back to bite them where they're so desperate to play the ball and, and all this and score goals and be beautiful that it opens them up in a, the latter part of a game because there was a fascinating article I read that essentially your concentration level can can really only stay at its peak for about 35 minutes which is one of the reasons that these Guardiola teams race out into the lead so quickly because they're all mentally sharp from kickoff and obviously it's natural that over time i.e. the 90 minutes that's going to dwindle and I'd love to go and, and have a look and see what portion of goals Man City concede at the latter stages of a game possibly when concentration is low I mean, that goal with Otamendi comes in the second half. So I think that's my one concern with them right now that I, I would want to keep a watch on is how do they start to close out games? How do they start to suck the air out of something when they've got a lead? It's also yeah, I would say... Yeah, I would definitely agree with that point. I, I think maybe in the more high caliber games like against a, a more high quality opponent, that wouldn't necessarily be the case because I think they're going to... St- you know, try to stay focused for the entire 90 minutes or keep that peak level of concentration because of the circumstances surrounding it. But I would certainly agree that I think there is an element of this Guardiola team and maybe Guardiola teams of the past that, you know, they're constantly doing things. The players are constantly being asked to do different things that there is really no uh, neutral gear as it were to sort of, uh, to nullify and, as you say, take the take the gas out of a game or take the air out of a game because they're always looking to either score or get the ball back or score or get the ball back if they don't have the ball. There's no there's no middle ground for that. And I think not only speaking of levels of concentration, but also levels of you know physicality and how intense, as I've mentioned on the previous podcast, how intense this winter period will be for every single Premier League team. Making sure that all these players stay healthy is, is a big uh, concern for yeah. Manchester City if they're to achieve their goals and and you know if they can't sit back and relax a little and maybe save some legs and that can be a real issue. Yeah, it certainly is interesting. I, I think maybe that's partly why Barcelona was almost so perfectly made for Pep was uh, because some of those people are taught to do that from a very young age, whereas this is a different kind of coaching. Although some people are arguing this is actually as good as that Barcelona football was a few years ago, uh, sans Messi, of course. Um, Man City find themselves top of the table. That's all that matters. Uh, a team that finished top of the table just a couple of years ago, Chris, Leicester. They're now in Sac City. Uh, no, it's not your favourite gay bar in Soho. It's um, it's where they get rid of their manager. Uh, and they're joined there by the Everton players as well. Both of those managers have been replaced and there's a lot of debate over who should get uh, what team going forward. Obviously, Club Powell goes to Leicester City and Unsworth goes to Everton. Early on, Chris, uh, Puel gets it. That's probably because there's a little bit more um, work to do at Everton uh, as they try and maybe undo some of what they consider to be the wrongs of Ronald Koeman. Uh, They lost 2-0 in the end to Leicester on Sunday. Yeah, and and the fascinating thing for me is Puel comes in and plays a a 3-4-3, so kind of adapts the squad a little bit to him or the other way around depending on which way you want to look at it and I think that's kind of what Everton need they need someone who can come in and work out uh, a style that fits this really misshapen squad because that's 
that's what it is. And, and you know, to add insult to injury, Kieran Dowell, this very promising young midfielder they've got, scored a hat-trick for Forrest at the weekend where he's on loan. What position does he play? Number 10. So then how do you integrate Dowell when you've got £45 million Sigurdsson, however much a week, Wayne Rooney, and don't forget Davy Clarson, who people keep saying he's a central midfielder. He played in a midfield three at Ajax. That's very different to playing as a, as a two sort of uh, holding two with a 10 in front of you. So I think that's that's what they, they really need to look at now because I think you can spend a lot in January if you want, but it's no guarantee that it fixes the problems. They, they need someone who has a very clear idea of, okay, this is what I've got at my disposal. This is how I'm going to line them up because the problem Everton have got when I look at it, it's not just the number 10 Sigurdsson issue. That's a big thing. Don't get me wrong. And a lot of people sort of jump to that because it's the obvious uh, take. But you've got Jagielka, who I think probably should have retired last season. Ashley Williams, who for me, every time I've seen him this season, anger issues. he is on a, he, anger issues aside, he's on a downward turn. He's, he's not getting any better, in my opinion. The, be- the best days of his careers were, were yesterday. Um, and well, then, actually quite literally not. <laughs> um, and, and Mason Holgate uh, is trapped in this position where him, and I'd say Michael Keane as well, are coming into a situation where their defensive partners are not the stability and experience that they should be. Yes, yeah. they're experienced, but they're not providing them the platform to succeed. Um even even Jordan Pickford, the constant change at the back means he has no platform of stability. I'm not saying that that absolves him of blame, but that's not the infrastructure with which to rear and develop a promising young goalkeeper. No, and I think you you look at the head of the pitch, they just don't have a number nine. Dominic Calvert-Lewin is a very promising young English player. He, he did well for, I think it was the under-20s this year. Um, but he's been shifted from left to forward to all these different positions. So he's not getting, again, any continuity of of play in his game. And Umar Nias, who was, you know, persona non grata fairly recently under Corman, is now being shoved in and expected to do something with no real consideration of does he mesh well with those behind him? And and I think, look, you can pie it all on Corman and say he's the problem and he's not flexible enough. And he was, you know, I think it was Jonathan Wilson wrote quite a good piece on post-Cruyffians and, and how they succeed and fail and all that stuff. But for me, the, there's more than one culprit here. You've got to look at Steve Walsh um, for either not speaking up or, or not putting more uh, fail-safes in place to protect this squad from being so imbalanced. And then also the fact that they've kind of just thrown David Unsworth into this position where, you know, I understand he wants the job. He's very passionate about it. I admire that. He's got a lot of experience within Everton Football Club. But it, I don't see how even giving him the job tomorrow would set them up for success any more or less. They need someone that actually has an idea and a bit of experience of, of how to manage the situation. And people like Phil Neville saying he's the most experienced candidate alongside the names like Ancelotti and, and Thomas Tuchel. That's, look, I don't like to, you know, chew out uh, pundits, but it's laughable. There's no other way to believe it. It's just laughable. Yeah, I mean, Phil's got his own interests. Um, obviously, uh, the upturn that we've seen at Valencia uh, over the past season, it can only be down to the groundwork that Phil Neville laid there. Um, anyway, let's move on. Uh, let's move on from that. Uh, Wayne Gary. Rooney, Gary, yeah, but Phil was there as well, Dave. He was, yeah, true. That's a good point. Yeah. If anything, wasn't Phil there before? 
Phil was a, a coach there before Gary went there, wasn't he? But he wasn't a manager, was he? Or a head coach? No, but then he very much was part of the groundwork and he did teach his kids Spanish. Excellent. Um, we've all we've all learned Spanish. Um, anyway, uh, let's move on from that. Uh, Wayne Rooney, by the way, reminds me of a player who you play... You, you know when you play chess against someone and they only like one piece, like they really love the queen, but they could just use their knight so much better? That's Wayne Rooney. Why, Miko, would Watford lose to Stoke? It just sounds implausible. I have no idea. Ah, good. Uh, Fantastic. Uh, Because, of course, uh, Dave, we watched it the other day. He's been the darling of the league so far. Marco Silva has led Watford towards the top six. Uh, And then everyone expected playing Mark Hughes Stoke. It would be a very different matter. But, But it was actually a little bit strange. Troy Deeney started... Uh, was that one of the problems? Face washing no. Troy Deeney? No, I don't think so. I think that it was a semi-decent performance from the Stoke back three. I think that's a big thing. Vimmer, Shawcross and Kurt Zuma played for the first time, I do believe, together in the league this season. And if you look at the amount of shots that they blocked, especially at the edge of the area, Pate's quite an interesting picture. There was, you know, there's a map of around uh, you know six of the 12 so half of the Watford shots have all come on the edge of the area and they've all been blocked by one of the back three you know our, our mate Elliot Hatney from uh, Bear Pit TV went to the game and it was a real back to the wall performance from Stoke City but with these guys you know with these three centre-halves who are very very good players that you know if they're going to get pressurised they did well I think you've you know you've got to give Stoke a bit of credit they scored a goal from that they worked on, on the training ground with Darren Fletcher's deflective shot then they saw the game out but I think it maybe it could be to do with now what we may see with Silver is another evolution of Marco Silver is when he's expected to win these games what does he do of course he did go back to a 4-4-2 through Andre Gray up front with Troy Deeney but maybe a, you know, a 3-4-3 that would have matched the Stoke system could have been a good way to push and then he could have had three forwards out of the pitch Gray could have been part of that maybe they could have had a little bit more width from from their wing backs because they ended up with Hughes on the right wing so it's an interesting one from, from Silver but he will learn and I think maybe transition into a back three when chasing a game could be a really good option for him. We've seen someone like Mourinho do that in the past. We all remember Michael Essien playing sort of as a, as a fullback on the right. We've seen Amber Herrera do that for Manchester United. Maybe that's something that, um, you know, could be taken on board for Marco Silva, just a different way to break an opposition down than going direct and going with a 4-4-2 against the back three. I think that's the big, big thing. They needed to go man-to-man in an attacking sense if they were chasing a goal and they didn't. Of course, Stoke got a very good, a good result, um, you know, in a game where Jack Butland didn't have to make as many saves as usual it kind of shows the that with with these three center halves in a way Stoke can afford to play the likes of Chupa Moting, the likes of Shakiri, all together in the same side which is pretty mental yeah well, yeah it certainly is a different approach um but yeah in the end Mark Hughes got the win uh, elsewhere Chelsea beat Bournemouth away from home uh, only one nil some people say it's not their best performance but it's still uh, nice to see Alvar Morata uh, paired up with Eden Hazard and uh, others out there. Uh, Chris, there was a, well, some people are saying there's a misquoted quote in, I think it's Gazzetta della Sport from Italy, saying that um, Morata says he's not particularly happy in London because it's such a metropolis and he can't see himself staying for long. You've been cheering, you can say it better than that. Um, yes, he, I, I 
see when I read the quote on I've been oh, was it Telegraph. Um, might be the Telegraph or the Independent. I got the sense that he just meant I'm I'm going to move outside of London, not I'm going to leave. Um, because Chelsea's training ground, I'm reliably informed, is in the south. Is it is southwest of um, the main city? Um, so yeah, I, I don't think there's a huge. He's since clarified it. Um, Miguel Delaney posted something that said there was a mistranslation that uh, he, he doesn't think that that's the case at all. So yeah, I can firmly believe that. Um, at the same time, I think I do think with Chelsea, and, and we discussed this, I feel like fairly recently on the pod that the the life cycle of Chelsea, whether you're a player, whether you're a uh, a manager I mean it applies more to managers really if I'm honest it's not always the longest um, there are players that, that um, disprove that theory but I, I think yeah it's, it's a club that, that does operate on boom and bust but that's why they've won so much oh, yeah, that's a very good point uh, the dog agrees uh, Liverpool beat Huddersfield 3-0 pressing versus pressing makes uh, for less impressing uh, but it certainly looks better for Liverpool uh, sure there you go. 3 0. Everything's fixed. Uh, Arsenal did, you, won. did you enjoy the uh, the back three from uh, Jurgen Klopp there? Lawrence? Yeah, I thought it was fine. I, I, yeah, I think it's, it obviously made a difference against Huddersfield's system uh, and it nullified a lot of the threats that Huddersfield bought, um, especially in terms of counter attacking. It didn't give them as much space to counter attack into. Um, and it, if anything, I think it actually took change the orientation of Liverpool's formation so they pressed in more effective areas further up the pitch weirdly because you'd think that they could do that with two at the back or three at the back um, but yeah I, I think it, it was better any uh, any takes yourself Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You said you had a question about, um, question about Klopp. No, I, had a, I have a theory about Klopp. Because originally, uh, <laughs> uh, I originally when when the news came out that they had purchased Nabi Keita in the summer, but obviously he wasn't going to be here until next summer, possibly in January. I didn't really necess- I didn't really understand the purchase, not because Nabi Keita isn't a good player, but because at the time uh, the biggest problem facing Liverpool was sort of their possession, how sort of seemingly ineffective it was. Obviously, times have changed a little bit, and we have talked about the effectiveness of their pressing and maybe now I understand the purchase a little bit more and makes a little more sense in the context um, because obviously without players like Adam Lallana and Sadio Mane these players missing out you have less effective pressers in the team and maybe with that as we've talked about in the past you know tactical analysis of Liverpool can sometimes be repetitive and, and some somewhat prescriptive so I think it's important to look at what the manager is attempting to achieve as opposed to what they can do better and I think in that sense if we look at maybe what what Jurgen Klopp wants to achieve through his, you know, business or supposed wants and needs in the transfer market. I think he's actually maybe looking for a way to circumvent the process of 
trying to make his team more compact, which is one of the solutions that I mentioned he could have if, if he were to make his pressing more effective because Liverpool aren't Manchester City. They can't go out and spend 200 plus million in one summer on new defenders. And so circumventing that problem would obviously uh, involve buying better better pressing entities. And I think I think Naby Cates is a part of that. So maybe there's this crazy idea that he just wants to build this team of like super pressing entities that can do it all on their own without actually tactically adjusting to it because that work would require maybe different players. Maybe he's trying to avoid the the physical uh, the physical barriers that he faced in the past in terms of injuries with his players because of his play style and the intensity of it. I mean, am I making any sense here or is that... Yeah, you're making you know, a lot of sense. I, I just also think it's partly down that, you know, Jurgen Klopp is also a motivation, motivational manager and I think at times Liverpool looked um, less impressive, uh, mainly because they a lot of their players physically look a little bit dour out on the pitch. They don't look particularly positive they don't look overly um confident in the way they carry themselves i'm not saying that i'm not going to go to any conclusions with that but i would say um i would say it, it, it has an influence on how people see um the players in what sense i mean well i mean if the fans are off the pitch not feeling as confident then you know then it kind of affects the way they support the team, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, do you feel like, I think specifically maybe with, with Liverpool, they're, they're in a difficult emotional situation with some of their players, specifically with uh, Jordan Henderson, because I think so much of what he was, or what Liverpool fans were brought up to believe with, was that he was going to sort of fill that Gerrard role. And I think you've talked about that before. And I think maybe in this situation, as Dave has spoken about, as I've spoken about, there's a sensation that maybe he isn't quite, good enough to fit the perfect idea of what Jurgen Klopp wants to do. And obviously that would be winning a title. So, I mean, is there a sense of emotional, you know, middle ground there for, for Jordan Henderson that. Yeah. Well, to, uh, two, stuck with? two separate evaluations of Jordan Henderson, uh, Jordan Henderson's a, a decent player could definitely do a job in a team and does do very regularly a job. Is that the job that Liverpool fans want him to do? Probably not. Uh, would a lot of Liverpool fans like to see uh, him in another team? Um, yeah, maybe. We'll, we'll see about that. Uh, I think a, not every fan wants to see him leave, but I think some people don't feel as impressed. So it's uh, it's tricky. I mean, if Naby Keita came in and you can change to a, mid, a midfield without him, I think a lot of people might prefer that. Who knows? Uh, we will see in the coming weeks. Uh, let's talk a little bit about international football. Uh, Dave, you love the under-17s of England because you love tactics and you love watching um, football evolve. And England, uh, at mm. youth level, have done very well recently. U20 and also U17, now world champions. Uh, any hot takes on this? No, I think it's just, uh, I think the big thing with England is they've sort of changed their coach and approach. The, the DNA that we hear about England's DNA, especially I've been hearing a lot about that over the last few weeks um, from my coach course. And it's interesting how we're actually seeing some real, real positive sides from the FA changing things. You know, you consider those groups, those groups are probably going to be, you know, the last three years that, you know, the under 17s would have been under 14s on the 15s on the 16s on the 17s and they'll be having that work with them so it is quite interesting that the FA is, is moving on and evolving these players you can see that they, they do play together they're very tactical 
flexible, you know, switching between a number of systems. I do believe the 3-5-2 they played in the final, but it was very fluid. And that's what I like to see from, from English sides is, you know, it's that fluidity and that ability to play on the counter-attack. And mentally as well, I thought they, you know, you saw as soon as they grabbed that goal, uh, the third goal in that game that, that Spain lost it and then England simply just counter-attacked down the left-hand side. In fact, the right-back kicked off, I think, on two occasions and nearly got sent off with the, the English, uh, you know, one of the English players, but it was quite simple, but it was quite effective and it's kind of how I want to see English football going on, very, uh, you know, further, very flexible, can play a number of systems, are comfortable playing on the counter-attack. I've got a number of different different sort of solutions to problems and that's what the, the England DNA is all about it's about building a player that, ha- that can make these thoughts himself on the pitch uh, supported by his coaches but it's made- making a thinking player I feel that's what we've been missing in England for a while you know we see a lot of players that are picked um, pre this sort of you know change that are physical that are tall or that are strong that are getting ahead of these young technical players and someone like Ben Foden you know, he's a very technically gifted player that's very very impressive someone that obviously England missed um, Angel Gomez who apparently was out of the tournament with a, a bit of a, a chest infection you know he's another player that very very slight very small a new age England player and that's why it's so so you know exciting to see them come through but whether they do get played at their clubs is another story they should do because they've got the talent I get I guess then we come back to the old tropes don't we Chris of um you know the, the media ripping them down trying to find uh, issues with them Raheem Sterling, Sterling has certainly been subject to that over the last few years and most of those attacks um have come from sort of the, the typical red top papers uh some of them you could you could say would have been racially charged um and i think it's a, it, it has been difficult over the last few years but i mean i guess you could say with these two wins uh but two different levels of world cup there are some real positives to have there it's just whether um, I mean, part of the problem is maybe the, the press and the media regard themselves themselves a little bit too highly in the equation, and they sort of only think about the stories they can write. Pra- on a very practical level, winning two World Cups at this level is a good thing. We're not going to see the whole crop of these players uh, playing first-team football. Maybe that's an unrealistic expectation, but it certainly shows that there are enough talented players coming through an even lower level uh, where... You know, it is it is a real positive, and actually, there there is something to take. It's whether um, really they're allowed to blossom in the way that they should, and that's not just a coaching side or a press side. There's sort of a lot more to that. Chris, yeah, I think the thing is as well. Phil Foden actually took the golden ball um, at the tournament. Now, uh, I did a piece for for you, Max. Wait, wait, just... Didn't he take the golden boot? Uh, sorry, he didn't take, yeah, he took the golden ball and uh, Brewster got the golden boot, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I did a piece for you, Maxa, today. And if you look like at the recent history, you're about 50-50 for players that went on to do something like Tony Cruz, Fabregas, and then players that just haven't kicked on. So it's it's like it's not a guarantee of success, but it, it can be a, a positive indicator in the same way. Um, and I think, yeah, you, you look at, um, that squad, there looks a lot of talent there. The, the thing is, there's always going to be a cynical eye cast on this. And England won the Euros um, in, I think, 2010 and 2014. And really, you're only looking at Ross Barkley and Jack Butland as players that went on to, to play for England with any regularity from those squads. In fact, I looked at uh, the 2014 squad and... Um, Actually, was it the 2014 squad? It might, it might have been that, or, or maybe even the 
the the U20s from this year, and you're looking at about 80 Premier League appearances, less than in fact, amongst them. So, I think we can take the positive that Foden, when he played for City in pre-season against Man United in Houston, didn't look out of place, um, showed up quite well, and Guardiola clearly has a lot of faith in him. Um, that's a good sign. But yeah, I think the the change in DNA of, of England from its youth levels is is a significant influencer in bringing this much success through. And I just hope it continues. I hope there's not some kind of horrible revision because it's taken a long time to get it even looking into this direction. Yeah, it certainly is interesting. I think uh, behind the scenes, there has been a lot of coaching and um, coaching progression. It, um, very often it's, it's difficult to, to judge it from the outside unless you are actually part of it and I think on a day-to-day basis a lot of the journalists writing columns are very rarely near those uh, levels of coaching um, so you know maybe it is also slightly Fox News-itis where people don't see what goes on and therefore they think it doesn't happen um, we will be reviewing the Champions League later this week but we won't be previewing it so much there are it, there's a lot to do there um, but yeah, let, let's let's move on to uh, some other big things going on. Uh, Nico, gay footballers are also allowed now in um, Football Manager. This is outrageous. How can people reflect reality in such a way? Yeah, I mean, I, I, as as you said, it, it is reality, and for people to be so unaccepting and and the reactions of of this sort of thing to be but Nico, so. Nico, it's, Nico, it's not real because there aren't gay footballers. There's something you really need to understand here. There aren't any gay footballers. You, well, I think that you, that's part of the that's part of the problem that we're trying to highlight here is that you know the reaction to just a, a hypothetical situation where a uh, a non real entity in a video game comes out as homosexual is creating such uh, a a large. Uh, and bad reaction from the majority of the the people who play it is part of the reason why probably there aren't more publicly gay footballers. And that's really an issue because if we're not allowing people in our society to be comfortable with themselves and, and the things that they want to do, which are completely normal, then I mean, what, what kind of, what does that say about our own society? I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and I guess it is uh, also quite innovative in a sense from football manager here. Um, it, I, I think something probably should be applauded. Uh, there are a few ridiculous replies below. Here's some things that maybe a, a young gay footballer might be reading right now. Uh, such an obvious marketing gimmick that adds zero value to the game. Forced and pretentious. When this guy's then challenged, he says, by normalizing them, you don't single them out and make them different from the rest. And this is a football sim, not a social sim. Um, a feature that they knew would bring attention, exposure and engagement exactly how marketing works uh, some people obviously trying to derail uh, whatever uh, positive or affirmative action there is uh, going on by pretending it's just for cash as if people as if the losers who already play football manager weren't going to buy it anyway um it's a joke get over it uh there's a lot of uh, it's a it's a it's a football management game craig sexuality shouldn't come into the equation that's a really brilliant tweet uh sexuality shouldn't come into the equation said uh, an obviously straight man there um who let sexuality indeed into the equation uh any uh, dave you, you'll be playing football manager this year won't you 
Yeah, it should do if I can find some time. Maybe actually I could play it down on the train to London every week. That'd be quite good. Football yeah, I mean, yeah. time, six hours a week. That'd be beautiful. Yeah, it'd be lovely. Are you gonna? Have you uh, earmarked a team that you'd like yet, Dave? Have you thought about this? Is there anyone yeah. you've got in mind? I've been thinking about Tottenham. I quite wow. like to play with Tottenham because I want to. I want to sort of. I've never managed. I've never won the Premier League playing a back three. You've never had to change your negative mentality, have you? No, I've never never got to that negativity of Pochettino's back five system. So playing the three, I quite want to play Eriksen and Ali as as a, like two number tens. Um, that could be quite interesting. But also, obviously, United. But again, I always find it a bit too easy with United. It's too much like it's too simple. You play a four three three. You play a four four two diamond. You pretty much counter attack, counter act every single system in the Premier League. You've won it easy. So could I want to maybe challenge you- myself for him. Well, try try playing attacking football with United, Dave. I do dominate possession, mate. Simple. That's not attacking. That's just dominating. But then again, well, you call it what you want, Lawrence McKenna. But you know, with a partnership of Anthony Martial and Robert Lewandowski, with uh, you know someone like who's Mendembele in behind, as pace. Dave, you tell you what, uh, I see a YouTube series blossoming uh, similar to. Roy Evans and Gerard Houllier. Uh, Chris, who, Chris, who would you take right now? If you could manage any team in the world, who would you manage? Ajax. Good. And you're guaranteed in, in Europe they're way more accepting of uh, homosexuality, so there is a likely crossover here. In England, Wait, we're what? a bit backwards. We're a little bit, if you will, uh, you know, bent out of shape. Have you just outed me on the podcast because I'm not homosexual? <laughs> no, no I'm, just, I'm just saying, uh, you, you, as a as a game, it'll definitely be easier for you as a manager to manage that. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. No. I was confused there. I was like, what? Have we had a conversation? I forgot. Uh, quite a few. Um, although, yeah, again, Chris isn't gay, but that's fine, Chris. It's all right that you're not gay. That's fine. You can be whatever you want. Um, Ajax, good. Uh, Nico, where would you go? As much as I have fallen in love with Napoli uh, over the past year or so, I've I've always had a soft spot uh, in my heart for Roma. So probably Roma. Wow. Okay. Why Roma? Uh, I visited the city a few times when I was younger with my parents, and I just I really love the city, and I I love Italy. I love the food, um, and the the, the what I've experienced of the people. So I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think it's just a really fantastic city. So that's a good point. It really is. Uh, I myself don't know. Uh, I just I tend to play it for about ten minutes. You 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 are a you are a closet like uh, Juventus super fan, aren't you? <laughs> I'm wondering where you're going with this. Um, yeah, in a way. I think uh, you are. I think you very much are. Uh, but I the problem is again, if you take over a successful team, it it sort of looks after itself a little bit, which is a little bit annoying. I don't maybe maybe Fiorentina in the works. We're only going to Italy because you know Fiorentina yeah. is not a bad idea. Um, I, you know Napoli is a pretty tempting city. Since I've been to Naples, it's a lovely. You've been place. right? Yeah. Yes, lovely, beautiful city, beautiful people, really? similar to Liverpool. Uh, don't Dave. Uh, anyway, uh, let's move on. There will be lots of uh, football manager talk on the front three uh, very soon. Uh, let's actually Wait, go to sorry. go on Dave sorry sorry Lawrence I'm lying yeah. to you I'm lying to you I'm, I'm going to be Valencia sorry genius yeah Dave forgot about that that is actually a really good idea Dave because you want to manage really fun. 
four four two in in uh, La Liga. Beautiful. Dave takes Sam Allardyce to La Liga. Uh, mm, going to operate the long throw, one hundred percent. And in many ways, that is going to be Dave's thumbnail from now on. Uh, Sam Allardyce's big face, uh, because actually, Sam Allardyce supports you, Dave. There isn't enough support for English managers in the UK. Uh, exactly. You see. <laughs> Give me a chance. I'm now qualified. Give me a chance. Uh, Dave, are you planning on putting uh, your qualifications in your Twitter bio? I was, you know, as soon as you said it, I was about to do it. But then I thought, nah, I'm going to look like too much of a dick. People already think I'm a dick. You know, doing that is just like confirming their thoughts. You were born a United fan. It's only natural. Uh, let's go to Italy. AC Milan versus, <laughs> versus Juventus. Uh, this one, Chris, is a case of classic experience uh, and uh, essentially the, the, the squad uh, which is a little bit more established um, pressing itself onto AC Milan uh, and Iguain getting two goals four at the back here for uh, for Juventus yeah I just worry about Milan um, do, you, do you not think I this don't... is one of those transitional seasons they can write off no matter what happens I would love to believe that, but I just find the precarious nature of their owner far too ominous for the situ- for, for my liking. No, I do see um, point, yeah. There were concerns when he took over, um, particularly the way he took over. Yeah. Um, and yes, I think a lot of the spending that they've committed to already has been fairly financially diligent in terms of Frank Kessie, for example, uh, is being loaned with an obligation to buy. So, you know, you can delay the payment, if you will. I think that's in part to um, to conform to FFP. But at the same time, I just question if, if firstly, Montella's the, the right man for the job um, as it sits now um, in its current state. But then also, I think any manager who has to work under that uncertainty above him is always going to be influenced by it. Um, and it's just, yeah, it just doesn't sit right with me. I think, personally, when it when it comes to, to Serie A this season, I really think that it's it's probably Juventus that will take it. I know Napoli at top, um, and they have that three-point gap. But the thing with Juventus is they, they've been there and done that before, and it, it might sound like a cop-out to talk about experience, but I think you look at that game against Milan and it shines through again, and, and even the fact that you know Douglas Costa maybe hasn't set the world alight and their signings maybe haven't seemed as um, influential as previous seasons, but I just think when you've got that inertia around the club, and I know you've talked about this before, it, it really does just give you that extra... Four or five percent. Yeah, and no, I, I see your point. Um, I think a lot of people are writing this season off for Milan, and we're going to see. I think we'll see some evolution along the way. There, there's going to be some sort of interesting. Um, there's going to be some sort of interesting evolution. I think uh, in terms of the way they buy, in terms of the way that they get on with things. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next season with them, and whether they go up to challenge the guys at the very top. Um, the guys at the top at the moment, though, Nico, are Napoli played as many games as Juventus they've got a better goal difference just by one point and obviously a better points difference by three if we're looking at this uh, team is it capable of winning the championship 
I think so. Um, be, because like I mentioned sort of in the previous podcast, when you asked, you know, of the perfect teams left in Europe, what which one of them can go uh, undefeated or has the best chance of going undefeated for the entire season, I, I continue to believe, especially after this weekend, that it is Napoli against their game. Uh, their game against Sassuolo was another uh, indication of how put together their system is. And as much as, I, as much as I've sort of spoken about all of their attacking efficiencies and everything that they do with Dries Mertens and Lorenzo Antonio, and Jose Callejon, they're one of the best defensive teams in Europe because of their holistic approach to how they, you know, how Maurizio Sarri uses a formation. Um, he's actually, I think somebody wrote something about how he was one of the first coaches to use drones in training practice to, to uh, evaluate or do something with his players to show them how to, you know, move in different situations and, and do those sort of things. So it's obviously, I think as I mentioned, sort of a very holistic approach to the game. And I think that's coming through this season. And as Chris mentioned, Juventus has that experience. They have this uh, consistency within that league. But since the the top dogs this season being Napoli and, and Juventus are so good against the lesser teams, it will come down to the... The, the I think I think in my opinion, I think it will come down to the games between the, the top teams, you know, the Inters and and the Napoli's or the Napoli versus Juventus games. And I think in in those situations, they have the capability to beat Juventus, whereas in seasons past, since they had Bonucci and they were so ingrained in that system. This, although, you know, Juventus haven't shown too much of it, is still a transition period for Juventus, transitioning away from Bonucci, transitioning away maybe from Buffon and some of those guys. And it's it's going to, they're going to drop some points, they're going to be exploitable, and this is where Napoli come in and I think win the title that they more than more than deserve if they continue to perform this way, which I have no reason to, to, to think that they won't. Dave, let's follow you. Let's go to Spain. Uh, Spain is looking good in La Liga. Obviously, people are talking about everything that's going on in Catalonia at the moment uh, it, with that not being concluded let's stick to the football for now uh, Valencia won 2-1 on Saturday Simone Zaza <laughs> uh, hilariously for West Ham fans getting yet another goal uh, taking his record up there with the best in Europe at the moment um, it, still fascinated with this Valencia team though Dave it, it seems for some strange reason to a lot of people from the outside to be able to challenge the likes of uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid They're only four points off the top and Barcelona, and they're four ahead of Real Madrid. Yeah, I think they're a, they're a very good side to watch, and they're playing the right way in Spain. They are overloading teams on the counter-attack, especially Andres Pereira did start uh, at the weekend and grabbed assist against Alaves and looked quite good. I think Guardes came off injured, though, which is a bit of a worry. But in terms of Zaza, it is interesting how something we spoke to Bazinga about on Saturday on the kickoff with you and Jordi, where we were talking about Zaza and how the English press may have played a big part in him, you know, sort of failing in England in a way. And, you know, Zaza allowing the English press to get in his head and him missing all these chances because this season he's so clean as a forward. He's, every single chance he gets seems to go in. And it's quite interesting that the, the link between the, the Spanish press, that they don't really get on your back in, in the teams like Valencia, that, you know, if you do play for a Madrid side and you miss some chances like Ronaldo right now, um, who's getting absolutely hammered for not scoring goals and so forth, you know, you kind of miss that if you are maybe at Valencia that's playing well or you know you're not having that same media pressure and that's what this sort of Valencia team has it looks like it's playing with no pressure and someone like uh, Carlos Sola who plays on the you know the right wing has looked very good almost Koke-esque in a way if I were to liken him to any player wow. so I think it's, it's just a, it's a great team together and again they're showing that they, they've got that resilience to hold a one goal lead to, to the very end defensively they've looked very good 
um, at the back, especially when, of course, Gabriel isn't playing ex-Arsenal player. What about, oh, you just had to get that in, what about uh, Real Madrid? Obviously, Dave, they lost 2-1 to Girona on the weekend. Obviously, some uh, political undertones there, but more than anything, it's that they lost to Girona on the weekend. Yeah, I think the big thing with Zidane is that, you know, this is a bit of a test for him and using, the, using a 4-4-2 diamond against uh, any side that has wing-backs is utterly stupid and, and that's, in fact, what he went with, you know, it's got to be a little bit more flexible with the system. Yeah, you understand that a 4-4-2 diamond can, you know, slip a press that's pressing in a 4-4-2. But if you have a back five against a diamond, you start to see problems. You know, do your fullbacks, do they deal with the opposition's wingers that, like Girona had, they were playing a pretty much a 5-2-3. Do you deal with their wingers, you keep your back four narrow, then you've got no width in the final third because there's no one overlapping. And, and that's the kind of issue that Real Madrid have now is that is Zidane... Was, was Zidane completely correct in his decisions last season? Yes. Has he been correct this season? Absolutely not. He should have played a 4-3-3. Should have gone wide. Should have stretched him horizontally across the pitch at the, the high end and allowed the likes of Benzema and Ronaldo to start wide and then come inside. But he didn't do that. So it's, it's an interesting one for Zidane again. And we're seeing that, you know, was there, a, was there some sort of chinks in his armour as a manager? Maybe yes. But I think it's just about evolving Real Madrid and getting the, the group together. You know, there has been some you know disharmony in the squad you know Marcelo having a go at Modric after the game you know having a go at both of them making mistakes but that, that unity that they had last year maybe slipping away so Zidane does need to get back to the levels of man management that he had last season but tactically he has to make the correct calls and at the moment he's just not doing that I'm looking forward to seeing Real Madrid Tottenham on um is it Tuesday or Wednesday? I actually don't know which day it is, but during the Champions League this week, it's certainly going to be interesting to see uh, that game and obviously what Tottenham can do to them and the reverse of what we saw the one all. It's going to be a fascinating game. Um, it's, been good, it's been good to have you guys there. We've had a lot of uh, tweets in throughout the day from uh, different sources. I've got some good questions for you now, uh, for you guys. Let me go through some of these mentions. Um, there was a good question down here. Um, uh, what's a more iconic duo uh, Ja Rule and Ashanti or Barcelona and Messi Nico Ja Rule and Ashanti can't go really? wrong with that yeah sure uh, but Messi can we, can we can we also say that the club that was supposedly in crisis has had their best ever start or one of their best starts to a La Liga campaign uh, ever now, uh, you're talking about Barcelona, of course. There, yes, not not Ja Rule and Ashanti, but is it though, Nico, that off the pitch, people, uh, although that would make a good football team, um, does that uh, does that mean, Nico, uh, that people are being unrealistic, or is it just because maybe they've got a player carrying them? No, I, I think it's sort of the the points that Dave and I mentioned previous to the season starting, which is Valverde is a is a competent coach, and they needed to switch back to this idea that maybe Neymar had taken the one away from. And I'm not pinning anything on him. They were uh, a really fantastic side when they won the Champions League with Neymar, Messi, and Suarez, obviously being amazing. But what was good about that team was the fact that you you will never see a competent football team not be excellent on both sides of the ball and that's what Barcelona were they could be counter-attacking they could destroy you with possession they, they uh, and mesmerized the, the, the opposition you might say exactly and yeah. and uh you know they 
they uh, Neymar did a lot more defensive work back then uh, than he was than than he did in you know later seasons, and that's what they're sort of getting back to. Is Valverde has a very concrete idea of what you know his players need to do off the ball, um, and also what they need to do on the ball. And it's a good evolution of a manager to make that jump to a different uh, level of club and and make that transition so well. Um, but it's not just a player like Messi carrying them. Obviously, he's he's taken on a different role uh, since. Valverde has taken over, but that's just him being utilized in a different way. So it, it's a good system, and I think they'll have a lot of success with it. And I think for people to start hailing, you know, oh, you know, it's we're not what we once were. That's just one of those things that fans tend to say when think when results aren't going a certain way. And yes, maybe they've gone away from their 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 club quote unquote roots of promoting La Masia players, but there aren't many top teams out there that do that consistently because it's so difficult. There's so much more to it that goes into just putting a player from your youth academy into the first team. So yeah. I, I think it's, you know, yeah. Well, you might, I mean, that's, that's part of it, I guess, with Barcelona, although some people still say the very top have tried to spend their way out of issues. Um, you got to say right now they are living it up. First time that Real Madrid have ever lost to a newly promoted side as well. The first time ever. Yep. Apparently. What's love? Anyway, uh, moving on to uh, some other subjects. Uh, the final question for the podcast now. And Dave, this one's one for you. You live in Manchester, uh, the takeaway capital of England. What, what's your favourite takeaway? Favourite takeaway? Yeah. Um, probably Turkish. Oh, I like wow. getting like lamb and chicken sheesh. Yeah, you're right. Rice, yeah, yeah. Salad. It, it tastes healthy. And then the Turkish it? flatbread. Yeah, absolutely spot on. It tastes healthy, but it, you know, it, it, there's probably it's something not. later in life that's going to come back and smash one heart attack into and finish you right off. Yeah, especially if you become a football manager. Um, <laughs> Mom! Mom, <laughs> get the Turkish! <laughs> Chris, what about you? the intro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, <clears throat> it's a South Park reference, FYI. Yeah. Oh, right. Sorry, that makes sense. I was confused for a second there. Um, uh, probably pizza or something like that. Good choice. Great. Uh, what, what what would you have on top? Uh, pepperoni. I mean, you know this. We live together for a little bit. It's, um, yeah, it's always... I did. <laughs> Sorry to you, actually. Um, <laughs> Can I try course... something different? Nope. <laughs> Definitely pepperoni. don't. Uh, I'm having egg on mine. Hmm. I'll start pepperoni. Uh, of course, Nico, you're a big fan of pepperoni. Uh, what, what would you have, though? Uh, in terms of takeout. Yeah, I mean that's what the that's uh, is that the subject we're discussing? I thought I thought you meant pizza. Um, no, take out in general. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, that's, why I, that's why I'm here. Why don't you go first? I'll think about mine. What what, what kind of takeout you like? Uh, this is a good question. Um, there's a. Uh, oh, I haven't even. I've actually, I've actually got mine now. I know. Okay. It. Wow. Okay. I really stole both of you there. Go on. Uh, there's a really, really good uh, Nicaraguan place near my house, and obviously my dad's from Nicaragua, um, so they they do it they do it correctly. You know, the chicken, the rice, and the beans is just phenomenal. So. Sounds it nice. does actually sound really good. Uh, let us know on Twitter what yours is. Uh, hashtag I am the whole. Uh, it's been good to have you guys today. Uh, if we missed anything, let us know. We can cover it in the middle. What was of the yours? Podcast. You didn't tell us yours. Uh, you'll have to guess. Ah. Yeah. Uh, if we missed anything, let us know. We'll see you guys midweek talking about all the Champions League. Uh, you can also submit your questions for the Q&A. Uh, and of course, you can get it, everyone on Twitter. Those links are in the description. Uh, it's been good to have you, Nico. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. You too, Chris. Cheers.
uh, there as always. And Chris is very good on Twitter as well. Uh, go and give him a follow. Uh, and of course, he also runs the TF3 account. Uh, and of course, Dave, you just installed uh, internet in your place in Manchester. What's Manchester like right now? Yeah, it's all right. A bit rainy. Standard. Decent. Do you have a takeaway? No, not today. Not today. <laughs> not today, takeaway. Anyway, it's been good to have you guys. I will see you again real soon or again on TF3.